Good morning. It's an honor to be with you in worship this morning and to bring you a message from the Word of God. And so in studying our passage this morning, I came across an article recently that was written in Smithsonian Magazine. And the article discussed something fascinating that happens when the roots of trees touch each other. There's this unknown fungus that is present that reduces competition between the roots of trees. Uh, the substance actually helps link together the roots of different trees, even different species of trees. And so because of this fungus, a whole forest can be in fellowship with each other. The author of the article wrote, All the trees here, and in every forest that is not too damaged, are connected to each other through an underground fungal networks. Trees share water and nutrients through the networks and also use them to communicate. And so if one tree has access to water, another to nutrients, a third one to sunlight, then all of the trees throughout the forest have means to share with one another. And this gives us a picture of what we as God's people, we as Christians in the church, need for each other. We need to support one another. We need to use our gifts to work together in doing the work of the Lord. The church should work in unison, helping each other like these trees in the forest. But there's an issue that gets in the way of people working together that doesn't arise with trees. That issue is sin. The sin that pervades the human heart and specifically pride. C.S. Lewis once wrote that the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And so in today's passage, we learn the story of Abimelech. Abimelech was a man who was drunk with pride and his lust for power. In this story, we will see three truths about pride. The first is that pride makes us seek our own glory. Second, God opposes the proud. And third, that pride leads to downfall. And so the story of Abimelech actually begins at the end of chapter 8. Abimelech's story is connected to the story of Gideon, who is his father. We're told at the end of chapter 8 that Gideon had 70 sons and many wives. And then specifically, we're told about a son he had from a concubine from a city of Shechem named Abimelech. And the name Abimelech actually translates as, my father is king. And so Gideon, who denounced kingship over the people, then at the end of his life seemed to be seduced by the lures of being a king. And so clearly this is true because he named one of his sons, my father is king. And so then at the end of Gideon's life, although it was marked by apostasy, it was marked by him leading the people to worship a golden ephod, the text seems to suggest that Gideon in some way inhibited Israel from further spiritual and moral decline. Because at the end of chapter 8, in verse 33, it says, As soon as Gideon died, 
the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal-barith their god. So first it says they did this immediately. They wasted no time in turning to other gods. Any worship of Yahweh, the true God that was present at the end of Gideon's life, is now gone immediately after his death. We also see this phrase that is repeated throughout the book of Judges, that the people of Israel whored after the Baals. It's also translated as prostituted after the Baals. And so the people of Israel were God's people. They were his covenant people. Old Testament Israel, they were the bride of Yahweh. And so because of this, they were a married people. They had the covenant with Yahweh, their God. And so we see the magnitude of what they're doing. They've become a married prostitute. And it's also significant here that they made Baal Barith their God. Barith is the Hebrew word for covenant. It's the same word used when God makes a covenant with his people. Baal Barith actually is translated as Baal of the covenant. So God's covenant people of Israel have made a covenant with a false pagan god. And the people also rejected the family of Gideon. The last verse in chapter 8, verse 35 says, they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So then chapter 9 begins with Abimelech leaving the house of his fathers to return to the city of his mother, Shechem. And Shechem's located in the hill country of Ephraim, which means it's in Israel. This story takes place completely among God's people. So, so far in the book of Judges, all the threats were external. Now we're going to see an internal threat that takes place within God's people. And so Abimelech was born from a concubine, a servant of his father, which means he wouldn't have been in line for any inheritance. He wouldn't have been in line for anything. And destined for a life of relative obscurity among 70 brothers and not being of the proper lineage. But Abimelech's pride takes over. Abimelech wants to be important. He wants to rule over the people as king. And in his ambition to be king, Abimelech goes to Shechem and he appeals to his mother's relatives. He tells them to go to the leaders of Shechem and create a choice for them. He wants them to say, who do you want to rule over you? The 70 sons of Gideon from another city, or Abimelech, one of your own. And he says to them, remember that I am your bone, I am your flesh. He appeals to the family bloodline, and it seems to work because his mother's relatives did what he asked them. They went to the leaders of Shechem and presented this choice, and this worked as well. The people of Shechem wanted to follow Abimelech because he was one of their own. He is our brother, they said. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal-barith. And Abimelech used this money, this idol money. It was from a pagan idol temple. And he, he used it to, in the text it says, hire worthless and reckless fellows to follow him. And so he went with these worthless and reckless fellows to his father's house, Gideon's house, which was 30 miles away from Shechem. And he went there, and it says he killed all 70 of his brothers, 70 men on one stone. And this idea of 70 men on one stone means that this was a calculated, systematic way, one by one, bringing them to the same stone and killing them. This wasn't a quick onslaught of unexpected victims. But one of Gideon's sons, Jotham, the youngest son, actually escapes. 
And so then the leaders of Shechem gather together and they make Abimelech their king. And so this story of Abimelech is, is much different from the other judges. First, he is not raised up by God to deliver his people. Abimelech becomes king by his own ambition, not by the calling of God to lead his people. And this is our first truth about pride this morning. Pride makes us seek our own glory. Abimelech, in his pride, wanted to be king. He was seeking his own glory instead of wanting to glorify God. And this is something that can happen to all of us. Pride is the idolatry of self. Pride makes us pursue our own glory. And in our pride, we leave God behind. Pride puts us in competition with God. It's in pride that we remove God from the center of our lives and we put ourselves there instead. Pride can cause us to forget God, focus on ourselves, to be unfaithful to God, to be faithful to our own desires. It, it can cause us to make destructive decisions. I was a soccer coach for most of my adult life. And the pursuit of my own glory on the soccer field became an idol for me. And it was all driven by pride. I wanted glory for myself. I wasn't doing it to glorify God at all. It was solely for myself. And ultimately, in my pride, I became the idol. What I wanted was most important. And this had consequences. It had consequences on my family because I wasn't around as much as I needed to be. It had consequences on my relationship with the Lord because I was seeking my own glory instead of pursuing God and his kingdom. And we all do this. We do it in big ways. We do it in small ways. In our pride, we seek our own glory instead of glorifying the Lord. And so Abimelech was clearly only concerned with his own glory. He wasn't concerned with glorifying God in the least. And he seeks the help of his rebellious pagan family and leaders of Shechem. And he seeks the help of his mother's family to go and kill his father's family. And the prideful people of Shechem, they make him their king. They have completely left God behind. But now Jotham, the one son of Gideon who escaped, hears that the people of Shechem made Abimelech king right after he had just murdered all of his brothers. So then Jotham goes on top of a mountain and he speaks to the leaders of Shechem. And he tells them a fable. This fable is about trees who want a king over them. And first they seek an olive tree who rejects the offer. Then they ask a fig tree who also rejects the offer. Then they go and ask a vine who also rejects the offer. So then the trees ask a bramble to be their king who accepts the offer. The first three trees that he asks are of good quality. They are of value. An olive tree, a fig tree, a vine. They all pr present uh, produce that you can sell. They have value of them. But a bramble is like a thorn bush. It's not good for anything but being burned up in fire. And so they've made a worthless bush their king. And so the Jotham gives the conclusion of this fable in verse 15. He said, And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Then Jotham immediately 
follows this fable and applies it to the situation with Shechem and Abimelech. He says, if, if the people of Shechem, if you have acted in good faith in making Abimelech your king and you have treated the house of Gideon fairly the way he deserves to be treated, which obviously they haven't, but if they have, then let the kingship of Abimelech be a blessing to them. But if you haven't acted in good faith, and if you haven't been fair to Gideon's family, which you clearly have not, then I hope you get what you deserve. I hope you burn each other. I hope you destroy each other. So then Jotham fled immediately to a place called Beer on the other side of the Jordan, and he lived there in hiding for the, probably the rest of his life from Abimelech. Now it says, Abimelech rules over Israel three years. And the fulfillment of Jotham's words begins immediately. Since the leaders of Shechem were clearly not fair to Gideon's family, and they clearly did not make Abimelech the king in good faith, the mutual destruction begins. But this is not just a natural consequence of a bad decision. God intervenes here to bring about their mutual ruin. It says, starting in verse 24, And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And then the consequence of this evil spirit. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubal, that is Gideon, might come. And their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And that brings us to our second truth about pride this morning. God opposes the proud. In his pride, Abimelech sought his own glory. And the leaders of Shechem in their pride wanted to make a king from their own city. And they were both willing to kill to get what they wanted. But God stepped in. God sent an evil spirit, and this spirit brought about their ruin. God opposes the proud. Now, it's important to note that God doesn't make the spirit evil, but God was able to sovereignly use this evil spirit to serve his own good purpose. God sent a spirit that was already evil, and in it he executes his justice upon evil men for the evil things they have done. Prideful Abimelech and his plans of self-glory are thwarted by the sovereign God, the only one who deserves glory. And we see this frequently in the Bible, this paradox. The paradox of seeking glory for ourselves actually leads to no glory at all. But humbling ourselves and seeking God's glory leads to our glorification with Him. Jesus taught this principle Himself. In Matthew 23, He said, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. When we seek our own exaltation and pride, God will humble us. And because the power and prevalence of pride in our heart is, is always there, God, in His Word, consistently tells us to focus on self-denial, to focus on humility. And so I want to pause here for a moment for each of you to examine yourself. Where in your life do you seek your own glory instead of glorifying God? Where does pride in your heart push you to desire to be exalted? It's through renouncing ourselves and humbling ourselves before the Lord that God brings us 
to him. When we humble ourselves, then God will use us. The most humbling truth of all is that it's only by the grace of God that we are saved. Throughout the book of Judges, the people of Israel repeatedly found themselves in the need of being saved. They were oppressed by their enemies, and this was a consequence of God's judgment of their sin. But God also repeatedly saved them. But here in the story of Abimelech, God does does not provide a savior. Abimelech exalts himself, and without God to save the people, things get significantly worse. Salvation is completely from the Lord. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. God, in his grace, not only saves us from his wrath, but in his grace, he humbles us. And so let us seek God's grace in our lives, his sustaining grace that we can turn from glorifying ourselves to glorifying God. May God point out to each one of us where we allow pride in our hearts, that we can repent and humble ourselves, that we can seek God's glory and glory of his kingdom instead of our own. Being humble means living for God and others instead of for ourselves. And so now the rest of the story is the mutual destruction between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem playing out. It begins with the leaders of Shechem setting up men to ambush Abimelech on the mountaintop. And Abimelech was told about this. So then another man named Gal appears. He moves into Shechem where he has relatives as well. So Gal not only has relatives in Shechem, but he seems to be from Shechem. And so it says that the leaders of Shechem put confidence in this new man, Gal. And so they had a, they had a festival, they had wine right there in the house of their pagan god. And they ate and they drank, and it says they reviled Abimelech. So the arrival of Gal, this new guy, brings the leaders of Shechem to be angry with Abimelech and to criticize him. And then Gal says, who is Abimelech? Why are the men of Shechem serving him? Isn't he the son of Gideon? And then isn't Zebul his deputy? Zebul is this man, a deputy of Abimelech that he put in rule over the city of Shechem. Ultimately, Gal says, they should be serving the men of Hamor, who is the father of Shechem. So Hamor is the founder of Shechem. Gal is saying that they should be following one of his descendants. And since in those days your lineage was determined by your father, Abimelech, being the son of Gideon, was not of the line of Hamor. He's really, he's saying, Abimelech's not really from Shechem. And then he says, would that this people be under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech, I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. So Gal is now boasting that if the people were to follow him, he would defeat Abimelech and rule over Shechem himself. And so Gal uses the same strategy that Abimelech used. He's appealing to the bloodline with the leaders of Shechem. He's using Abimelech's strategy to undermine Abimelech. And so then Zebul, who was the ruler of the city of Shechem, hears about this. And he tells Abimelech, he sends secret messengers to him, saying, you should ambush the city. Gal is trying to stir up all these people against you. You should set up an ambush at night and in the morning come down and kill Gal and all the people with him. And so Abimelech does this. He sets up an ambush at night, and then in the morning, the ambush comes. And Gal goes out to the gate of the city. 
And an interesting exchange takes place between Gal, the object of the ambush, and Zebul, the ruler of the city, who set up the whole ambush. Gal says to Zebul, look, there are people coming down from the mountain. And Zebul says, no, you're, you're mistaking the shadow of the mountains for men. And Gal says, no, look, there's people coming down from the center, and there's people over there in that direction. And then Zebul reveals to him what's going on. He says, where is your mouth now, you who said, who is Abimelech? that we should serve him. Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. And so Gal goes out with the leaders of Shechem to fight Abimelech, and Abimelech chases Gal, and Gal runs away. But it says many fell wounded at the entrance of the gate. So these are all God's people killing each other. Then Abimelech moves to some other place. He doesn't stay and occupy Shechem. He, he puts Zebul as command over there. So then Zebul drives Gal and his family out of Shechem, and they can't live there anymore. But then the next day, it's not over. The people of Shechem go out into the field, and then Abimelech ambushes them as well and kills more people from Shechem, not just Gal and the guys that were with him. Now he's killing more people in the city of Shechem. And it says he completely destroyed the city, that he sowed it with salt, which technically means the salt would ruin it, ruin it from farming. But it symbolically represents that the city from now on would be dead and barren. And then we read of another story. There's a tower in Shechem. And the people of the tower, the Shechem, heard what happened and they ran up. It's kind of like a temple complex for the pagan god that they worship. So Abimelech had defeated everyone in the city except for these people. And so now the leaders of this temple complex are hiding in it. So Abimelech finds this out. He goes, he chops up some wood, he puts it on his shoulder, and he tells all the men that are with him to do the same. So all the men go over to the tower of Shechem with a bundle of wood on their shoulder, and they set fire to the tower. And they kill everyone in it, a thousand men and women. And this was the end of Shechem. At this point, Abimelech had completely defeated them. He had completely destroyed the city. And that part of the curse of Jotham was fulfilled. Abimelech literally burned them as Jotham said he would. But Abimelech's pride, his personal ambition, was only fueled by this victory. He now goes on to another city called Thebes, and he wants to capture this city. Thebes seems to be weak because Abimelech goes and captures it right away. But the city of Thebes had a strong tower similar to Shechem. And so all of the men and the women and the leaders go into this tower and they lock it up and they go up on the roof. And so Abimelech decided he was going to go there and burn it down just like he did in Shechem. But the problem for him, to burn a tower down, you have to get really close. You have to put the wood right at the bottom of the tower. And when he goes to do this, a woman takes a large stone and throws it off of the roof and crushes his skull. And when his skull was crushed, he was dying. He said to a young man, called him over and said, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. So the young man did as he said, and he killed him with his sword. And then when the men of Israel heard that Abimelech was dead, they all went back to their homes. And the story of Abimelech concludes in the final two verses of chapter 9. It says, Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham the son of Jerubal, son of Gideon. 
God's opposition to prideful Abimelech resulted in God's retributive justice against him. And this meant the complete downfall of Abimelech and the men of Shechem who supported him. And this is our third truth about pride this morning. Pride leads to downfall. We live in a culture where not only do we put people on a pedestal, but we in American culture value pride. The people that are idolized here are extremely prideful people. Movie stars, musicians, politicians, athletes. In American culture, they're all completely full of themselves. And this is considered a good thing. How many times are we told, believe in yourself, believe in your own abilities? It's your talent, your ability. If you just have enough belief in yourself, then you'll make it. And on the surface, this seems okay. We do have talents and abilities, and we are to use them. And And this resonates with us. It resonates with our pride. But when you compare this to the message of the Bible, this is not what we're told by God himself. We're not told to trust in our own powers and ability. We're told to trust in the power and the ability of our God. We should have ambition in life. We should want to do well and succeed in the world, but we need to do this with a heart focused on the service of God. We should use our talents and our abilities for the service of others and for the service of the Lord. And this is where often when you hear teachers of prosperity gospel, name it and claim it theology, where they get it wrong. These are people teaching just having enough belief in yourself and you can have everything you want. If a preacher makes every sermon about you getting what you want, then they're just appealing to your pride. And this will ultimately lead to your downfall. And we may look at the rich, the famous, the prideful, and think that they have it all. We may think that they haven't had a downfall yet. But unless they repent and turn to the only one who deserves fame and glory, a downfall is coming. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And it's this counterintuitive principle that God consistently lays out before us. Seeking your own exaltation will result in you being humbled by God. But humbling yourself and exalting God in your life means that He will ultimately exalt you. But pride makes us fight for our own position. Pride makes us seek what we desire, even at the expense of others, even at the expense of peace and unity within the church. But humility brings us to put others first. Humility is to allow others to have their way, to have authority over us, to accept not getting our own way. And in doing all of this, God will exalt us. Humbling ourselves before God is a way to experience His grace. But we all struggle with humility. Pride sneaks up on every one of us, and it causes all kinds of of problems. But Jesus perfectly modeled humility in his life, and God exalted him as a result. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, whom all things were created through him, for him, by him, humbled himself by becoming human, taking on the form of a creature, a servant. And as a human, he humbled himself to the point of death, the death of a criminal on the cross, all while being completely innocent and sinless. 
And it says, therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Abimelech desired to be king. He wanted to exalt himself. He wanted his own glory. And this resulted in God's people destroying each other. But God loves his people. He loves us so much, way more than allowing this to continue. Jesus is the king of God's own choosing. The ultimate king. The ultimate righteous king that God's people desired but could not find among other humans. King Jesus leads as a servant king. He came in humility. And he came to lead his people into the kingdom of salvation. He modeled humility in his life and his death, and now he's exalted in his resurrection and his eternal kingdom. So let all of us put our pride aside. Put aside selfish ambition and conceit, and in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Let us seek unity within the church by seeking the mind of Christ. And we should remember that it's only by the grace of God that we would even humble ourselves before him. Without God stepping in and changing our hearts, we'd be a bunch of prideful Abimelechs crushing each other just to get ahead. But God, in his infinite grace, in his infinite mercy, sacrificed his only son on a cross so that we could be humbled and brought into his presence. It's only by the grace of God that our prideful rebellion is forgiven and that our prideful hearts are turned to humility. And so may we, by the grace of God, continue to seek the glory of God instead of our own glory. May we draw near to God in humility rather, rather than opposing him in pride. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. May we humble ourselves and seek God's infinite grace and wisdom. That instead of downfall, in the end, we'll be exalted with God and Jesus Christ for eternity. Let us pray. Gracious and loving Father, we come to you this morning knowing that we often fall short of your glory. We put our own desires and wants above you and your kingdom. We want to be first, and the outcome is division. We ask that you give us the humility to live according to your wisdom. Reveal to us the pride in our hearts that we are blind to. We are your servants. We want to glorify you. We praise you for your mercy and your love. And we thank you for the gift of grace given in your Son. In whose glorious name we pray. Amen.